Chapel, Mason City. So today, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 21 through 24. Now, Paul closes the letter, this wonderful letter that's written for the edification, the building up of the church. And, you know, these last few lines, typically, I have to admit, a lot of times I just read right through the, the closing greetings on books of the Bible. And maybe you do too. You know, you like to get right into the next thing. But as I was reading through this one this time, so much of this just struck my heart that I said, well, you know, rather than do a review of Ephesians and just breeze right through it, let's just take some time and think about some of the things that are found in this closing. Verse 21, but that you also may know my affairs and how I am doing, Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make all things known to you, whom I have sent to you for this very purpose, that you may know our affairs, and that he may comfort your hearts. Peace to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. Father, as we get into your word here today, we do pray that you would make the book live to us. And Lord Jesus, as we feed on your word, as we get built up in your word, we pray, Father, against distractions. We pray against wandering thoughts, Lord. We pray against the birds of the air that would seek to grab the seed and we pray for hearts, Lord, today, that our hearts are the fertile ground, that we're not packed down and hardened, Lord, that we're not inch deep, emotional only, and that we're not choked by the cares of the world, that, Lord, our hearts would produce fruit for your kingdom. We're here for your glory. We're here because you've called us. We're here to be used by you, to be equipped by you. We're here, Lord, because we've given our lives and hearts to you, because you deserve praise and worship. And so, Lord, may we approach your word today with the seriousness and the respect that it deserves. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So the first point here, Paul talks about a faithful brother sent he says, but that you also may know my affairs and how I'm doing. Tychicus, a beloved brother, faithful minister in the Lord, he'll make all things known to you. Now, Tychicus, the name means faithful or fortunate. He's mentioned five times in the New Testament. In Colossians, Paul adds that he's also a fellow servant. There are two things said here about Tychicus' character. Did you notice them there? One is he's a beloved brother, and the other one, he's a faithful minister. And so, two wonderful things to be said about a person. First of all, he's a beloved brother. He's esteemed. He's a dear brother. I love how the Apostle Paul talks about his friends in the Bible. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever paid attention, especially the end of Romans? 
I, I can't remember how many people he names in the end of Romans. But I love the way the Apostle Paul talks about his brothers in the Lord, the way that he speaks of his friends. It conveys the caring heart, the warm heart of the Apostle. Sometimes as you read about the Apostle Paul and all the persecution he endured and stoned and whipped and beaten and thrown out of town and all this stuff, sometimes you would think that this guy's just hardcore about getting it done and that's it. And I'm sure he's got that side to him about getting tasks accomplished. And I'm sure he's really dedicated to, you know, ministry and to serving the Lord with excellence. At the same time, this brother in the Lord loves people. He loves his brothers in the Lord. He loves his sisters. One of the things that I think is sorely lacking in the church is just common friendship. Just people being nice to one another. You know, church tends for some to become a business-as-usual sort of thing where they just pop in and out. They try to make it as quick as possible. They want to check a box to feel like they've done their religious thing. But you don't see that in the Christians in the Bible. You don't see that in the Apostle Paul. You don't see that in any of the disciples. They had love for one another. And you look at the way Paul speaks of his brother, a beloved brother. Over the years, you know, when people come to Calvary their first time, and then I ask them if, you know, if, if they stick around long enough or whatever, if I ask them, you know, what did you think about Calvary Chapel, Mason City, when you came at first? And they, I always got these two things over and over again. I, there's a tangible sense of the Holy Spirit, and people seem to be so loving. My heart is warm. I could die right then, you know? And, and, and when I hear that, I think of like, here, this is for you, Lord. Just when Christians, when Christian love takes place in a body of believers, just to see that, to see it tangibly expressed. John 13, verses 34 through 35 says, this is Jesus speaking. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And he says, by this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I love that. That's how people will know that you are a Christian is by the love that you have for other Christians. You say, no, they know I'm a Christian because I go to church. Well, Jesus says the way people will truly know that you're a Christian is by the love that you have for these people sitting right around you, right here. When you experience the new birth, you become part of a loving family. This truth resonates deeply with me as I was preparing this week, considering how many people yearn for genuine love and authentic relationships to feel valued and cherished by others. Tiki kisses a beloved brother. I reflect on the brothers and sisters I have in Christ, and we share a profound love for one another, openly expressing and demonstrating it. It's a stark co contrast to the world around us. Do you remember back to being a teenager where people were just so cruel, you know, to you? Like they could be your friend one day, and then if you didn't, like, wear the right clothes the next day, like, they could just be your greatest enemy. And you know what's unfortunate is those people grow up and don't change much. 
And in this world, it's filled with relationships, you know, where people want something from you and they'll have a relationship so long as you're giving them what they want. And it's such a cold place. There's so many people today that are so lonely that lack real relationships. But this is what the church offers. This is what the church offers is for you this opportunity to become a beloved brother, a, bro a beloved sister, someone that's loved and valued. I couldn't get past this this week. Normally, I just read right through this. But I saw those words, beloved brother. Now, building a family like this within the church community requires effort and a willingness to make sacrifices. There are those that expect that if they would just show up to a church on Sunday, that everybody's just supposed to pour out love into their life. And although there's some truth in that, to have genuine community, it requires sacrifice. If I want these sort of relationships, if I want church as church is supposed to be, if I want to be part of actually the real church as Jesus builds it, I have to sacrifice something. I have to sacrifice my freedom to sit on my phone and ignore people. I have to sacrifice that freedom. I have to sacrifice my freedom to just be this individual person that pops in to check a box and skates out afterwards. I have to sacrifice that freedom if I want to be in a genuine, real community where people would say, hey, what a beloved brother, what a beloved sister. I know this is kind of a hard statement right here, but do you think Tychicus sat around and ignored people? Probably not. Do you think Tychicus was more consumed with himself than he was Jesus and the church? Probably not. The early church, you read this in the Bible, you read how Jesus wants the church to be. You read in the book of Acts and these people recognized there was a necessary sacrifice they had to make from their lives in order to be built in and to have community. That's just required. That's how, that's how blood families work. If you don't ever show up to any of your blood families' reunions or anything like that, or if nobody in your family does that kind of stuff, you don't have family ties. You don't have family relationships. It's unfortunate that so many people grow up in broken homes like that and don't learn what it is to be a family because they bring that same self-centered attitude into the church. Now, God is at work trying to transform that in your life, if that's you, but you have to be willing to make some sacrifices. It is definitely God's desire that somebody would say of you, he's a beloved brother, she's a beloved sister. You've got to decide if you want that. The people that don't apply themselves don't really experience it. Proverbs 18.24 says, A man who has friends must himself be friendly. I love that proverb. It steps on my toes. It reminds me that I can't be such an individual. I got to sacrifice a little something if I want genuine relationships. Now, in God's church, you can have relationships that are deeper than you imagine, but it's going to take effort on your part. Now, he also says this. Here's the second thing he says about Tychicus. By the way, is anybody going to name their kid Tychicus? Good Bible names. 
Here's the second thing, that he's a faithful minister. The word minister, a lot of cultural confusion about this. Is it the guy that jumps around on stage and screams really loud? And, uh, you know, is, I mean, what's a minister? Well, it's, it quite simply just means servant. That's all the word minister means. Um, a lot of cultural confusion about it. Uh, typically in our culture, people look at the minister as the one that we're here to serve. We're not here to serve the minister. The minister is like the head servant. And in fact, all Christians are ministers. All Christians are called to be servants. Uh, we're all, every one of us, called to be servants. Jesus says, but he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. In other words, in the kingdom of God, if you want to be great, you become the servant of all. You know how you can tell you're a servant? Because you don't get miffed when people treat you like one. <laughs> My pastor always told me, I'd be like, dang it, man. <laughs> You know how you know you're a servant? When you see that your spouse didn't have time to put the clothes in the dryer. You don't get all mad and say, man, she never does. You put the clothes in the dryer <laughs> with a smile on your face serving Jesus. You know you're a servant when you don't get mad when people treat you like one. And he says he's a faithful minister. I love how he adds that there. He's not only a minister, but a faithful minister. There's hardly a better thing, biblically speaking, that could be said about anybody is that they are faithful. I don't know if you've noticed that when you've read through the Bible, but talent is not commended. Uh, good looks, never commended, you know. Uh, but faithfulness, frequently commended. Some people are just trustworthy, and that's a great trait. Those are the kind of people that you just say, uh, you just know that they, you can count on them. Faithfulness. Timothy is called a faithful son. Silvanus is called faithful by Peter. Paul calls Onesimus and Epaphras faithful brothers in the book of Colossians. Proverbs 20, verse 6 says this. Proverbs 20, verse 6 says, Most men will each proclaim his own goodness, but who can find a faithful man, right? Most men will go around and talk about how great they are, but can I find a faithful brother? Can I find a faithful sister? Listen to some of what, the, of what God has to say about faithfulness. Matthew 24, who then, this is Matthew 24, verses 45 through 46. Jesus is talking about a steward that was left in control of a house and his master went away. You guys remember the parable? He comes back and he finds the guy getting drunk and like taking it easy, saying, ah, he's not coming back, you know. But Jesus says this, he goes, who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find him so doing. In other words, Jesus says the people that don't get tired of waiting for the Lord to come, they keep faithful at what they're doing. He says, that's a wise servant the one that doesn't take it easy and start living for comfort and, you know, eating and drinking and just kicking back. He's, you know, he says that's a faithful one. Matthew 25, verses 20 through 21, in the parable of the talents, remember the parable of the talents, essentially the, the thing is, is about God has given everybody resources and essentially what did they do with them? Uh, and he's going to come back and say, what did you do with the life that I gave you, with the resources that I gave to you? What did you do for the kingdom? In there, he said, um, well done, good and faithful servant. And he was saying that to the ones that did something with the resources God had given them for the kingdom. He says he commends them on their faithfulness. He doesn't even commend them. I don't know if you know that, but some of them get different returns on their investment. 
he doesn't even commend the ones that got a greater return. He doesn't say, oh, you got a better ROI over here, man. Let's invest with him. Let's pull our money out of here. You know, he doesn't say that. He just commends them all the exact, the ones that did something. There's one guy that gets cursed and, you know, chop him up, throw him into hell. But the rest of them, they get commended the exact same way just for their faithfulness, right? Beautiful thing. Luke 16, verses 10 through 12 He who is faithful in what is least is also faithful in much. Wow. Somebody that can be faithful with a very, very small, seemingly insignificant thing that can be faithful with that, that's the sort of person that can be trusted with more things. There are some people that that display that they cannot be faithful with small things. The last thing that they should ever have is more things. In fact, that's where a lot of people are stuck in their life right now. They say, why won't God move me past this place that I'm at? And it's like, you're not being faithful with the stuff that he's given you right where you are. You need to be faithful with what he's given you first before you can expect him to give you any greater responsibility. Now, 1 Timothy 1.12 says, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, this is Paul talking, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. That's Paul telling Timothy, he says, I praise the Lord because the Lord counted me faithful putting me into the ministry. Paul didn't say that he was talented or good looking or anything like that or, you know, or an extremely gifted speaker. He says that he was faithful. I praise the Lord for he putting me in the ministry because I was faithful. 2 Timothy 2.2. And these things that you've heard from me, Paul says to Timothy, he says, commit these things to faithful men. In other words, as Paul's equipping Timothy as a pastor, he says, take this truth this gospel, and commit it to faithful men, people that you can count on, men of integrity, men whose word means what it says. Jesus is called faithful many times in the New Testament. In Revelation, he's called the one that is faithful and true. Peter uses the term a faithful creator, calling God faithful. It's interesting. Do this for some homework. Get out your Bible software or your concordance in your Bible and just look up the word faithful and faithfulness throughout the whole scripture and just read every verse of it. There's like, I think there's 86 times faithful shows up in the whole Bible. And it's just, it's fascinating. Uh, I was looking at all the verses last night. I only have like 92 more. I'm going to read them. No, just kidding. (laughs) But it was hard to pick, you know, because it's just such an interesting word study throughout the scripture. Faithfulness is one of the most important traits a person can display. 1 Corinthians 4.2 says, Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. Now, faithfulness is more important, again, than giftedness, talentness, talented, good looks, speaking ability. More than any other attribute, faithfulness is esteemed. We often think, and this is to you that maybe haven't got involved in serving the Lord yet. Sometimes you get stuck thinking, I can't serve the Lord. Like, I don't, I don't you know, have any of these things that, you know, I, I can't speak eloquently. Remember when Moses tried to give God that one? <laughs> Jeremiah, I'm too young. Nobody's going to listen to me. Just be faithful. Can you be faithful? The Bible says even when we're faithless, he remains faithful. So he even helps you in this. Can you be faithful? God sees and rewards faithfulness. As you serve your spouse day in and day out, buying up the opportunities to die to self and serve your wife, to serve your husband. God sees your faithfulness. As you faithfully serve your kids and change their diapers in Jesus' name, 
God sees your faithfulness. As you singles, as you faithfully make the most of the time that you have to serve the Lord with gladness and with joy, if you buy up all those opportunities that you have because you're not busy folding clothes and changing diapers and doing all these other things, if you buy up those opportunities faithfully, God sees your faithfulness. as you work faithfully to display Christ at your job, in your conduct, in your language, with people, how you perform your tasks, God sees your faithfulness. In school, as you young people faithfully represent Jesus Christ to your teachers, to your class, God sees your faithfulness. The way you study the Bible God sees your faithfulness. <laughs> it's really kind of cool, isn't it, that you can be faithful representing Jesus in anything that you do. If you drive your car in Jesus' name, I need help with that. I get so impatient by these people that go so slow in fast lanes. I have to say, Jesus, I'm not representing you faithfully right here as I ride on this other person's butt. And he says, it's simple, just slow down then. Be patient. Okay. And as you faithfully obey, you know, it's like he sees your faithfulness, right? Really makes life fun and enjoyable. I think the people that are just brimming with joy and excitement in life are the ones that have really embraced the ability to be a servant in any situation and just be faithful and just please the Lord in the small things, even in the smallest things that you do. Life is so fun. I no longer see the washing machine that needs to have clothes put in the dryer as a burden. I see it as an opportunity to serve, to be faithful. You could do that. As you serve here faithfully in week in and week out, God sees your faithfulness. He sees faithfulness. Now, what's Tychicus' mission? Look at this. He says two things again. He's going to tell them how Paul's doing, and he's going to comfort their hearts. So first of all, we see Tychicus will tell them how Paul is doing. Now, why would they care? Why would they want to know how Paul is doing? You remember the apostle Paul wrote this letter to these Ephesians. He's sending Tychicus, and as, as you see it there, he's like, I'm going to send him so he can tell you everything that I'm up to. So Paul had lived in Ephesus for three years. Now this is the longest that he spent in any one city. When he came to town, he found 12 disciples there. Do you remember the story? They hadn't yet received the Holy Spirit. They'd been baptized in John's baptism. Paul says, well, what are you doing? Where's the, what? He said, we don't even know there is a Holy Spirit. And so Paul tells them about Jesus. They get baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit comes upon them. They all start speaking with tongues and prophesying. And, uh, you know, many signs and wonders, it says, are done through Paul there. Miraculous healings through, uh, through Paul while he's there. It says also that he went in to go share the gospel in the synagogue, but they weren't having it. So he left the synagogue and he goes across the street to the hall of Tyrannus. Remember this? And he preached in the hall of Tyrannus daily for two years. Can you imagine going to the Apostle Paul's church every day for two years? And he did it all day. I mean, he worked all day and then he preached all night in the hall, in the hall of Tyrannus. Can you imagine such a thing? So I say all that because they would care how he's doing. They have a connection with Paul, right? And 
I want you to turn over to Acts chapter 21 for a second. I'm going to read Paul's departure from Ephesus. And this is just going to give you some background. And just this is another thing I got hung up on this week is why would the Ephesians care so much, you know, what, what Paul is up to? Why does he need to send Tychicus to him to tell them? And so when you read about Paul's departure from Ephesus, I brought some pictures actually to show you as we go through it. There are three of them. This is a rendering. This is a picture that somebody had drawn uh, to describe the moment here. Acts chapter 21, verse 17. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus, this is Paul, and called for the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, you know from the first day that I came to Asia in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you, and taught you publicly from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock." Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Isn't that sad? Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone day and night with tears. Wasn't business as usual for Paul, right? So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I've coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know that I have provided for my necessities and for those who are with me. I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words that he spoke, that they would see his face no more. And they accompanied him to the ship. There's other pictures up there. There's a picture of him getting ready to depart to the ship. You know, they're all mourning and, and weeping with Paul. Then there's another one yet. There's another Artist's interpretation of it as he's about to depart. Just the emotion that's in that, just the connection that he had with these people, laboring day and night for them, warning them all the time, trying to keep the sheep from getting picked off by the wolf. And he's in tears and he says, look, 
you know, after I leave, false teachers are going to come. He says, even people from among you, men are going to raise up, say perverse things. And then, you know, they're all weeping and sad and, and they depart. And so that's why they would want to know what is up with Paul. That's why Take a Kiss would bring him. So you can tell by this departure that he'd grown close. Now, this is church, right? One body of people with Jesus at the center, the closest relationships you'll ever find are those centered on Jesus. Now, like Paul is close with them, if you're not growing closer with people in the body of Christ, there's something wrong. You know, if you've been in church for a number of years and you don't have close relationships with people, there's something wrong. He had this incredibly close relationship. Now, so that's why he's sending Tychicus there is to let him know. That's why they would care what's up with Paul. Paul means a lot to them. And look at, so the second part of his mission in verse 22, that he may comfort your hearts. This is the other part of Tychicus' mission. Why would they need comfort? Well, think about this. The guy that led you to the Lord is like persecuted in church. You know, he's persecuted. He's in jail. He's locked up for the faith. So they would need some comfort and some consolation in this area. And so how did he comfort them? Well, no doubt by showing how powerfully that God had been sustaining Paul in his trials. Right? So he goes, I'm, I'm locked up, but I'm going to send Tychicus to you to bring comfort to you. And what Tychicus is going to do is say, look, God is really using Paul. Yeah, he's in jail. You've heard that he's about, you know, he's going to probably die for his faith. But God is using him. And Paul's joyful. And he's filled with the Holy Spirit. He's an ambassador in chains. And so Tychicus' words would be a great consolation, wouldn't they? To come to a, a group of believers and say, look at this guy that's going through an extreme hardship. God is blessing him and he's full of joy and he's trusting the Lord. Now, I really started to think about this this week because you go through trials. And the way that you deal with them could become a testimony of comfort to others. When a brother and sister or a church is going through a really difficult time, somebody could come and tell your story and say, I remember the time that brother so-and-so was dealing with that illness. But man, he was in bed, but he was praising the Lord. And your testimony becomes a story of comfort and it builds people up. I like that. Your trials can end up being a powerful testimony if you keep trusting and obeying Jesus through your season. So that's the faithful brother sent. What an important ministry this brother fulfilled, sustaining, informing, encouraging, and comforting the church. Now the source of all this is found in the salutation given. Look at verse 23. Peace to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So there we have peace, love, and faith. These are major themes in this letter, as you've, you know, no doubt know. He, where he says, peace to the brethren. So this means so much. A reminder of what Paul said earlier in the letter, that Jesus himself is our peace. And so when you say that to a Christian, when you say peace, brother, you're reminding them of the fact that Jesus bought peace between you and a God that's going to judge sin. And that Jesus himself is the peace between God who's going to pour out wrath on sin and upon sinners. He's the peace in between that. So, peace to the brethren, he says. 
And then he says, love with faith. The Ephesians had faith, but they needed to remember to have love with their faith. And again, I think that's a really good word for the church today. Do you know that in the book of Revelation, about 30 years later, it says, Jesus says that this church had lost, they'd left their first love. Revelation chapter 2, verses 2 through 4 says this, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear with those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. This is 30 years later. And this church had become a church that was able to do works. They were able to labor. They were able to detect false doctrine. They were able to rebuke false apostles. But they didn't have any love. This was a church of people where you say, let's greet one another, and all of them just sat there like, <laughs> uh. How can this happen? How can Christians lose their love for Jesus and for the body of Christ? How can it happen? There's a few ways that are in the Scripture. The Bible says that knowledge puffs up. Too many sermons and not enough obedience. Too many sermons, too much hearing that you're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself, but too little loving your neighbor as yourself. The American church is so chocked full of information and so minus obedience that this is why people lose their love for Jesus. You don't actually fall in love with Jesus until you obey Jesus, until you know, you don't know his word, you don't really know him until you start doing the things that he's called you to do. And he says the two most important things are to love the Lord your God with your mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the two most important things. But in the American church, we've got this model where people come in on a Sunday for whatever different mixed bag of reasons, but some of them are not the love of Jesus anymore. So knowledge puffs up. Too many sermons, not enough obedience. Another one is a sin and bitterness. That causes people to get loveless, too much sin, too calloused, not taking these things to the Lord, not trusting that even though you've been sinned against or whatever it is, not trusting that he will be able to work these things out. He will restore you. Too much sin, too much bitterness, unforgiveness towards people causes people to turn away from their love. Taking Jesus for granted, that's another thing that causes people to just walk in a loveless existence. Just taking this for granted, taking Jesus for granted, taking your brothers and sisters for granted, the word that you have sitting in your lap that countless people have been murdered brutally to make sure that you can have that Bible sitting next to you. Taking all of this stuff for granted causes a loveless church. Not really spending time with him. There are those that don't really spend time with Jesus. They read, they'll wake up and they'll read a devotional, which is, do you know how birds feed one another? They essentially just puke food into the mouth of their babies. That's kind of what it's like when you read somebody else's devotional. 
Because that person has sat there and chewed on the word of the Lord and meditated and spent time in silence with them and they've written down the fruit of their labor. They've put it in a book and you read it and it blesses you. And you flip on your calendar and you get your, your verse a day Christian thing going. And the whole thing is, is when, or if you watch videos about Jesus, some people will just be, that's, the, that's what their whole devotional life looks like, is like watching, you know, a Jack Hibbs video or watching some prophecy update or, or reading some book about the Bible but not reading the Bible itself. This is a way that you fall into a loveless relationship because you don't really have a relationship with Jesus. You have a relationship with the people that have a relationship with Jesus, right? Being a loveless church can be a really bad, I mean, it's a really bad thing. Jesus says, if you don't repent out of this, I'm going to pull the candlestick from you. He's going to take his presence from a church that doesn't love one another. That's sad. Only listening to sermons rather than sitting with him. If this is the bulk of your Bible intake is coming here, you're not really spending time with Jesus. Being more consumed with self than with God causes people to be loveless. The most miserable, depressed, anxious people are the ones that are most consumed with their problems with themselves. They don't take their mind and, and, and put it on others and say, Jesus, I'm going to be about you and others. I'm going to trust that you're going to handle these issues in my life. So Paul says, love with faith. Ephesus stands as a warning to churches that are maybe good at tasks, doing stuff, doctrine. They love the doctrine. They love the Bible. They love the Bible study. But they fail because they're not doing these things in love. They don't love people. It stands as a warning to us. Remember I said that, that was one of the, the two things that people always said about Calvary Chapel when they come there is those people are so loving. I'm really concerned that since we've come into this building that this has become business as usual and just kind of like get the task done, tear down, set up, get out of here. And I'm really concerned that the love is kind of, you know, that could, that could really happen. That could be a danger. Maybe the, maybe the reason we seemed so loving at that other place is it was so small that you had to bump into people and they were just courteous to you, you know. Here you can just avoid them, right? You can, you can just kind of do your own thing. This isn't in my notes here, by the way. This is just something that's really heavy on my heart, you know. I think we're missing just genuine friendship, you know. Some of us, not all of us. Some people are extremely loving and very caring and very sacrificial for others. There's some that are just consumed with themselves. Consumers. Coming here to get something, but not giving anything. I think that's a real bad place. I think you're lonely if, it's, if that's what you're doing. You haven't found what you're looking for. You haven't experienced Christ. So Paul wants them to continue in their love as Christians. And then a blessing pronounced, our last point, verse 24 says, Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus in sincerity. Amen. 
is his grace, God's unmerited favor. He says, may the grace of our God be upon you. And he qualifies that, though, doesn't he? He says, grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. So he's not just making this flowery, you know, outro. He's saying, grace be upon all of you in this gathering who love Jesus in sincerity. Because not everybody loves Jesus in sincerity. And the grace of God does not abound in their lives. The grace of God does not rest upon, the favor of God does not rest upon people that don't give their hearts to Jesus. There are some of you that go through incredibly difficult things, and then when that happens, you say, where's God in all this? And it's like, where are you in your relationship with God? Where are you? You say, well, I'm crying out to him all the time. Well, are you trusting him? Are you waiting on him? Are you trusting him? Are you believing him? Or are you going to your own resources? Do you sincerely love him? Do you sincerely trust him? Somebody asked me the other day, they said, what do you, what do you see as the genuine evidence of a Christian? Because we're talking about whether people could lose their salvation or not. And um, we had this, you know, conversation for quite a while. Blessed time at my house. We have this gal, well, Paige, she comes over every Thursday night and we have dinner and it's, it's just a blessing. If you ever want to join anybody Thursday night, and she has the best questions, you know. How, can somebody lose their salvation? And, uh, you know, it's kind of an interesting thing to think about. First John tells us the, the evidence of being saved is that you love the brethren. That, that's one evidence. And that you don't walk in sin. Uh, it's, you can't walk comfortably in sin comfortably and be a Christian. You can't do that. If you walk in sin comfortably, you're probably not saved, Right? If it bothers you when you sin, that's a good sign you're probably a Christian, you know. The love in your life might flicker, the light might flicker at, at times, but it never is fully extinguished because God put that in there. Can a person lose their salvation? What's the evidence that somebody's saved? I would say one of the greatest evidences that somebody's saved is they have a love for Jesus, right? If you're sitting here today, you say, I don't have a love for Jesus. I don't, I don't care about that. I'm just, I'm just coming here. You're probably, you're probably not on your way to heaven. You probably need to check yourself. You're probably not saved if you don't have any kind of love or, or any kind of feeling towards Jesus or any kind of sense of commitment to him. You're, you're probably not a Christian. I would, never, I would never comfort somebody that produces no fruit as a Christian and make them think that they're saved. I would never do that as a pastor. Genuine faith produces fruit, and the first thing is the love for Christ. That's why he says right here, grace upon those who love Jesus sincerely. Not those that are faking. Not those that are putting on a church face and coming here for whatever reason they come for. Not those people. The Bible says we love him because he first loved us. I love him because I know that he saved a wretch like me. I know what he did on the cross for somebody that's so unworthy and so undeserving. I know that when I was dead in trespasses and sins, my Savior died for me. I know that, and I love him because of that. And I want to serve him. And grace be upon your life, those of you that in sincerity love and serve Jesus Christ. May the grace of God be upon you, Paul would say to them. Hard times are coming. People are going to raise up from within your midst. Wolves going to lead people astray. Grace be upon you. May God's grace be upon you here today. And then he ends with this word, amen. 
Now, there, here's another one. Just to be a hardcore dude, I'm just going to be hardcore all the way through this one. Amen has become such religious dribble to people, but the word means so much. It means so be it. It means everything that was just said in this letter, so be it, Lord. Who we are in Christ, saved by grace through faith, a chosen people, chosen to be with him. He is our peace. He died in our place, walking in the works that he's established for us before the foundation of the universe, walking in a worthy manner, submissive one to another. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, submit to your husbands. Trust your, you know, all of these things in this whole letter, he ends it and he says, so be it, Lord. Not a mindless word to the Apostle Paul. So, in conclusion, this beautiful letter of a beloved apostle's heart for the purpose of building up the church, the true church, 